just open, keep your Bibles open to first or Second Samuel chapter 12. Second Samuel chapter 12. And, and church, I want to thank you for this appreciation this morning for my wife and myself and Brad and Jill. And thank you for the dessert time we're going to have afterwards and for all those cream pies. <laughs> I like banana cream pie. I like coconut cream pie. I like chocolate cream pie. I like all the cream pies. I like anything that uh, is a pie. So I, I'm thanking you ahead of time for all that. Thank you for that. We're still in David. Last week we saw that David committed adultery with Bathsheba. He had this sexual sin with this beautiful young woman. And then in the aftermath, he had Uriah, her husband, murdered and killed. Lord, I'm asking this morning that you'd help me to share this message and make it applicable to our lives as always, where the rubber meets the road. This October of 2013. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. I heard about an elderly couple. There was this elderly couple that had been married 60 plus years. This elderly couple had been married 60 plus years. And they were at this church fellowship together. And they were having a great time. And someone asked this elderly gentleman the secret of their marital success. They've been married 60 plus years. And this uh, gentleman said, well, you see, I've always tried to treat, treat my wife with respect. And I've tried to listen to her. And I've tried to meet her needs. And we've taken a lot of... Uh, trips around the world. We've taken a lot of trips around the world, he said. That's been the secret of our marital bliss. In fact, for our 25th wedding anniversary, I took my wife to Beijing, China. Beijing, China, for tw our 25th year. Everyone kind of clapped and applause and you know gave them applause, etc., etc. Then someone said, well, what did you do for your 50th wedding anniversary? He said... I went and picked her up. <laughs> I know that's kind of a corny one. But, but let me say this. If I didn't make this very clear last week, if I didn't make this very clear last week, let me say it now. The best, the best prevention, the very best prevention against, against adultery is having a healthy marriage relationship. The grass is not greener on that side of the fence and the grass is not greener on this side of the fence. The grass is greener wherever you water it. The grass is greener wherever you water it. And the best prevention against an adulterous relationship is a healthy marriage. This morning we see David. Now David is in the aftermath. This is the aftermath of his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba and this is after he had Uriah, her husband, murdered. And no one seemingly hears about it. David thinks that he's pulled a fast one over God. David thinks that he's pulled a wool over everybody's eyes. But everybody knows what David has done. They just don't want to talk about it. They don't want to speak about it. And God knows about it as well. Years ago, this is a true story, I knew a young man... 21, 22 years of age. He decided when he moved to the big city to sow some wild oats and he enlisted a prostitute for the evening. The next morning, early in the morning, when this lady left, she wrote on the bathroom mirror of this uh, hotel room, 
I have AIDS in lipstick on the mirror, and I hope you get it as well. There are always consequences to sexual sin. Did you hear what I said? There are always consequences to sexual sin. All kinds of diseases are out there, and all, always you always have the potential of an unwanted pregnancy. David, as we discovered last week, committed a series of terrible sins that led to terrible consequences. Now, he's 50 years of age. He's 50 years of age, and he's led up to this point. Uh, uh, he's had highs and he has had lows, but he's never experienced anything like this. And at 50 years of age, he commits adultery. And as a consequence, Bathsheba, again, gets pregnant, and then in order to cover it up, he has her husband, Uriah, murdered on the battlefront. And for the better part of a year, he lived in this hypocrisy and deception. His world became a world of guarded and miserable secrecy. Now, looking at this particular situation for, for a year or so, someone might think that he has gotten away with it. He thinks in the back of his mind that he's gotten away with it. Nobody wants to confront him, and certainly God has not done anything to confront him at, up to this point. He thinks, it's, he thinks he's got a pass, you might want to say. That sin does actually pay, that there are no consequences. But that was not the case, because the Bible says that in David's life entered in conviction. Conviction. So much so that uh, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, it says, Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, they will also reap. And God, throughout this year process, is designing a strategy, you, may, you might want to say, to bring David to his knees. As someone that writes, listen to this, God's wills often grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine. But during this year, lest you think that David's life was enjoyable with his new wife Bathsheba, free of guilt, and lest you think that David was a, in a marvelous state of mind, listen to Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. Listen to David's admission. This is what he writes in the psalm. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Here, and in Psalm 51, David says, I had sleepless nights, I had physical exhaustion, haunted memories, weight loss, total misery, and the worst feelings of all, I felt as though God had abandoned me. David says, when I lived in true guilt of my soul, I groaned all day long, another translation reads, day and night I felt the heavy hand of God upon me. I could not cope. I was sick. My body was wasting away. He was an absolutely miserable husband to his new wife Bathsheba. He was a terrible father, and he wrote and composed no songs. Remember, he's a great composer. No songs during this period of time. You see... Unconfessed sin does that to you. It does that to you. Because the Bible says the wages of sin is conviction. And if, is, if we don't respond and repent, it can lead to death. Now, I've been around people like this. You've been around people like this. We've been around people that have been involved in some sort of willful sin. And they'll dance all around the particular issue. They'll dance all the way around it. Everything's fine. Don't press me. 
I'm free. I'm really having fun. I, I'm really doing well. But deep down inside, you know it's a lie. Because everything is empty, joyless, hollow, pointless. It is true. A Christian cannot deny this. If you are a Christian, you, if you're involved in willful sin, you will have Holy Spirit conviction and convincing. This is what the Scripture says. God disciplines those whom he loves. One Christian psychologist describes it this way. This is how one Christian psychologist describes it. He describes guilt and conviction as a red light, a red light on, on our eternal dashboard. Now, years ago when I had auto shop class, I'm sure this is the story that every auto shop teacher told. And I don't know how true it is, but Mr. Sells, he was about this high and about this wide, and he would always eat a bunch of Tums the whole time. He was a driver, he was a driver safety teacher too, and you can understand why he had a lot of Tums in that car. He'd be with all his kids all day long. And, but he also taught auto shop. And he said, you know, when I was working as a car mechanic, one lady came in with her car and she said, my car is clanking and clanging and it's smoking all over the place. And he said he went to check things out and he noticed that there was a Band-Aid, a Band-Aid over where the oil light was coming off and on. And he said, what are you doing? She said, well, I, I got tired of seeing that light. And I put a Band-Aid over it. Now, if you ignore that red light, you're going to suffer the consequences. That red light is coming off and on to let us know that there's a problem, and I can fix the problem, and that's conviction. When we're convicted, when the Holy Spirit is speaking to us and convicting us of what we're involved in, the Bible says that we're to respond. It's like the internal dashboard, that light's going off, and we're to respond. We have a choice. David chose to ignore this. And when we choose to ignore, the Bible says that we suffer the consequences of our choices. And here David is, he's feeling conviction. There's nothing that happened external, but there's something happening internal. So David is ignoring this blurring red light, you might want to say, and he's miserable for it. And then Nathan the prophet all of a sudden steps in in David's life and told him the truth. Would you look at chapter 12, verse 1 with me again? First part. The Lord sent Nathan to David, and when he came to him, he said, let's stop right there. Notice it says, then the Lord sent Nathan to him. If you like to circle, circle that word, then. Did you hear that? He did not come on his own. He came after God sent him. And I think that's very, very important. That's the important word. In fact, the most important word in that sentence is then. Because... God's timing is absolutely important and incredible. Now listen, stay with me. When did Nathan the prophet come to David? After David's adultery with Bathsheba? No. Did Nathan the prophet come to him after she told David that she was pregnant? No. Did, did Nathan the prophet come to David after David had her husband Uriah murdered? No. Did Nathan the prophet come to David after he and Bathsheba were married? No. 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 Almost a whole year has gone by. What's happening? A year-long period 
before Nathan's visit. Why? Because God, I believe, was waiting for the right time. He was letting the grinding wheels of sin do their full work, and then he was going to step in. Now, in this particular story, I see a number of principles to follow whenever we have a friend or we have a relative or we have someone that's near and dear to us that gets involved in willful sin. Yes, we're to confront. Yes, we're to say something. Yes, we're to do that. And there are certain principles that we should follow, and we see these principles in the story of Nathan and throughout Scripture. We're to do that. I want you to listen to what it says in Proverbs Proverbs, um, and, and it says this, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Isn't that interesting? Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. And you know what this, that means? That means this. Faithful are the wounds. Translated in Hebrew means bruising. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. When someone cares enough about you, and they have a relationship with you, and they love you, they'll wound you with the truth, they'll bruise you with the truth, and they'll say, listen, listen, if you continue on down this pathway, if you continue to do the things that you're doing, I'm only here because I love you, and I'm concerned about you, but if you continue to do the things you're doing, you're destroying your life, and you're destroying other people. But the second half of that proverb says, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Someone will whisper in your ear and they'll say, you know what you're doing and what you're involved in? You're involved in that adulterous relationship where you have such an abusive spouse that you need to continue to be involved in that adulterous relationship. You know, you know, you have such a stressful life. You need to continue to go down that road of drugs and alcohol. It's okay. Everybody has vices. You see, a deceitful person will whisper these things into your ear and they'll tell you when it's okay when it's not okay. But faithful are the wounds of a friend, someone who cares about you and loves you enough that they'll actually come up to you and they'll confront you and say, you know, I care about you so much that I believe that you're heading down a path of destruction here with the things you need to do, with the things you're doing. So what are the, what are the principles? What, what, what do we see right here? First of all, right timing is primary. Right Timing is primary. Many people are confronted at the wrong time, and you know what I'm talking about. Many people are confronted at the right time as a Christian person instead of praying about it and trying to discern it. Well, so-and-so is involved in some sort of willful sin, and that's my friend, that's my brother, and I have to go talk to him right away without even thinking about it, without even praying about it, without even figuring out what you're going to say, whatever. I'm going to go to him, and I'm going to confront them right away. But there is right timing. There is something to be said about when the Spirit of God begins to convict a person and convince them that this is right or this is wrong. And sometimes it takes a little bit of time for the Holy Spirit to convict and to point out a person what they need to be done in their life. So there's preparatory. So first is right timing, and and, and the second principle is privacy. Privacy. Nathan goes directly to David. He doesn't go before the elders of Israel. He doesn't go before the whole nation. He goes directly to David. And he lets them know, as we will see and as we read earlier, that this is, this is wrong. Now, second, besides right timing and privacy, here's another principle that we see in this particular passage of Scripture. To be effective in confrontation, we need to confront someone that we know and that we have a respectful relationship with. That we know and have a respectful relationship with. In other words, as somebody has said so well, you do not punch the lights out of someone that is a stranger. You don't have a relationship with him. You don't have a right to be heard. 
And so how can you punch the lights out of a stranger, so to speak, and confront them with an issue unless you have a relationship with him? Now, um, David, his person that confronted him was Nathan the prophet, who he had a relationship with, who was a spiritual mentor to him. David respected Nathan. He had earned it over the years. And Nathan the prophet needed no introduction, and David knew him well. Now, I want you to put yourself in the sandals of this fearless prophet, and I want you to think about this. Here is David. He's a monarch. He's an absolute ruler of his country. Yes, he's answerable to God, but he's not answerable to anybody else, not even to the elders of Israel. He is a monarch, and whatever he says goes, and he has a right of life in his hands and the right of death. And David and, and Nathan the prophet knows this. Now put yourself in Nathan's shoes and you're going to go before the most powerful monarch of his day and you're going to go before him and you're going to tell him that he's an adulterer and that he has sinned against God. It was daunting, I'm sure. But nobody was as honest and forthright to David at that time. No one. They all knew about it, but no one was going to go to David. To say to him, you're in sin. So God told Nathan, it's time. It's been about a year, and I want you to go in person, and I want you to go in private, and I want you to tell him. And Nathan obeyed immediately. Now, before Nathan left the palace, he must have prayed a prayer. In fact, he must have been saturating this whole thing in prayer the whole time. And he was wondering, how am I going to present this? How am I going to bring this subject up with David? And this leads me to my third point. When confronting, you want to use wise words you want to use words of wisdom you want to use words of tact you want to be able to say it in the right spirit and say it in the right way it is important to say it in the right way and while you're trying to formulate and why you're trying to figure out and why you're praying about it and why you're trying to you know articulate the words and you're, you're thinking about it you also want to make sure that there is no telephone pole in your own eye before you take the speck of dust or the uh, whatever else out of somebody else's eye. You have to examine yourself. This is what Scripture says. So I'm examining myself. I'm praying about it. I'm trying to be tactful. I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to do it and when is the right time. And, and I'm going to do this in private. I'm going to go up to the individual. And, you know, I, I'm really impressed that uh, Nathan did not go up to David with some sort of uh, righteous attitude and point his finger at David and say, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're, you're a sinner. He went about it in a wise way. No shame. Uh, he had planned it out, what he's going to say. And notice Nathan's thoughtful and brilliant approach. I want you to look at verses 1 through 3 one more time with you, with me. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Notice he tell, it begins with a parable, a story. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and one poor, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had taken and bought. He raised it, and he grew up with him, and it was like one of his children. He shared his food. You can see this. He shared his food with his little ewe lamb. He, he drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. This little baby, innocent ewe lamb, it was like a daughter to him. Now, don't you know that David is on the edge of his chair listening to this story? Nathan has already got him hooked. He's on the edge of his chair listening to this story. And he goes on in verse 4. Now, a traveler 
came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep. This man's wealthy. He's got all of his sheep. He's got all his cattle, but he would not take one of his own sheep. This rich man... and to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, look at that second part there, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Now, at this particular moment, I want you to know what Nathan is doing. Nathan is making a noose. He's making a noose, and he's putting it around David's neck. He's telling this story. He's telling this parable. And no doubt about it, David, again, is on the edge of his seat. David is intense. He's listening. He's on the edge of his seat. When all of a sudden, Nathan finishes the story, and we can feel the passion in his response, David's response. Look at verses 5 and 6 with me. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Another translation says, and must make restitution for the lamb because he did this thing and had no compassion. And Nathan, the prophet, says those four words as he is pulling the rope around David's neck. Four words that transformed and changed his life. You are the man. You're the man. You're the one that has done this. The context is, you're the one that took another man's life You're the one that took an innocent lamb and you seduced her and you slept with her and you got her pregnant and then you had her husband murdered. You are the man. And I'm sure, it doesn't tell us in Scripture, but I'm sure that David's jaw must have dropped to the floor. You're the man. That kind of confrontation is the best thing in the world for Christians who are involved in willful sin. Now, after this whole thing here, and and, and you read, but we're going to talk about verses 7 through 12 next week, but he tells them, he gives them a whole list of consequences. Nathan says, here are the consequences for your willful sin. And finally, after relaying all these consequences in verses 7 through 12, David said, Notice notice what he says in verse 13. I have sinned. I've sinned. I've sinned sinned against the Lord. And with that admission, restoration began. Restoring a relationship began to happen. What do we read? First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. If I had shorts on this morning, I'm not going to lift up my pant legs. But if I had shorts on this morning, like a lot of you, you would see scars all over my knees. 
from morning to dark as a kid, I didn't want to be inside the house. I wanted to be riding my bike, and I wanted to be playing football. I wanted to be playing basketball. I wanted to be playing uh, baseball. And we had um, we had a, a whole group of kids that were my age, and the only place we had to play was in an alley, an alleyway with gravel and rocks. So you can imagine why my knees were always skin up all the time. We rough house, and we play there, and we play uh, flag football and everything else in that little alleyway. And we did this for years and years and years. So I've got all kinds of scars on my knees, even from childhood. One particular uh, time, I was riding my bicycle. I was going down a steep hill behind our house. And uh, some dogs came out. And uh, there were other things going on. I can't remember. But I wrecked my bike. I, I remember falling off that bike and ended up in, in, on the pavement, scratching up both of my arms and scratching up my knee. It was a bloody, pulpy mess. It was, it was terrible. It was, it was so awful. And um, I went home, and my mom tried to doctor it up, but it got infected. And you know how that cannot be descriptive? You know, that pussy stuff, and it got infected and all that, and she cleaned it out and everything. And you know what she started doing? Now, I don't think they do this these days, and I don't think that you're supposed to do that, but they didn't know anything back then. Or did they? I don't know. But she started using hydrogen peroxide. Remember that? And and I'd I'd get straighten out my leg there, and uh, she would pour that hydrogen and I go, oh, oh, that hurts! Oh, that hurts! Tears would come in my eyes, and she pour, and it would get all white and everything else. And and it, and did you know that after using all that hydrogen peroxide after a couple of days, all that pus went away and it began to heal up. Here's my point. Sin. Sin is very painful. It's very painful. You, you hurt you. It hurts you. It hurts other people. It hinders your relationship with God. What do you do? You know what the hydrogen peroxide of Scripture is? Confession. Sincere confession. Lord, forgive me. Cleanse my heart. I'm so sorry that I did the things I do. Genuine repentance. Not perfunctory. Genuine. Now, there doesn't mean that there are consequences for the, some of the choices that we make. and There are always consequences. and We're going to look at those consequences next week. But the healing started... When David said, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. I've blown it. I blew it bad. Let's pray together. Thank you.